0: Hey, deserving listeners, when the stories about Harvey Weinstein came out in full force, we as a society, justifiably so, had a reaction to that story. And that's when the hashtag Me Too movement started, which was a great thing for our society. Well, a similar situation is happening right now. Paris Hilton came forward and told her story about being abused in a therapeutic boarding school And she contributed to the hashtag Breaking Code Silence movement. This refers to a tactic used in some of these programs called Code Silence, in which the children were forced to be silent as a punishment for opposing the program. Many came out before Paris Hilton came out with her story. But with Paris Hilton's platform, the movement is getting a lot of attention since she raised a lot of awareness for it with her documentary – Called "This Is Paris," and we should be paying a lot of attention to this. I only recently became aware of this movement when the Paris Hilton doc came out, and many of you asked that I make a commentary or a reaction video to that to that documentary. I had no idea what it, what it was going to be about, and the main point of the documentary is her talking about the trauma she endured at these therapeutic boarding schools. And in my reaction videos, I talked about my experience with with these therapeutic boarding schools earlier on in my career. They're called various different names, therapeutic boarding schools, therapeutic treatment centers, wilderness therapy, boot camps, academies, specialty schools, therapy camps, rehabilitation schools, religious schools, behavior modification programs, troubled teen industry, and so on. After I posted my reaction videos to YouTube, I received a lot of emails from people who had similar experiences. I was even contacted by some of the women who were in the documentary with Paris Hilton. So I thought I would do a follow-up episode about this topic, this very important topic. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a licensed therapist and a professor In this episode, I'm going to start with an interview with one of Paris' classmates. In the interview, she refers to TTI, and what she's referring to is the troubled teen industry. And after we listen to the interview, which is, I don't know, 45 minutes long or something, I'm going to read some emails from some other survivors, and I'm going to read an email from a therapist who used to work in one of these programs and provide some commentary on those emails. Let's get to the interview with Kate Smith. So Kate, what would you like to share with the listeners regarding your story?
1: My goal is to bring awareness to professionals in the mental health community of the trauma that TTI survivors have. When a TTI survivor is looking for help, there's a lack of understanding. I've run into that when I've gone out and looked for help in in a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatnot, tried to explain my story, and and they don't know what I'm talking about. They've never heard of it. I've actually been told by three different therapists that they can't even take me because they aren't qualified.
0: So you personally, as an adult, after having survived the trouble team industry experience that you went through, traumas that you went through, mm-hmm. and you sought out therapy from therapists, individual therapy, and you sit down on the couch and you start to tell your story about what happened to you as a teenager, and the therapists either say or give you the impression that they don't understand what you're talking about. Is that what you're saying?
1: It was just, they didn't really acknowledge it in our sessions. I would try to talk about it and just veer away from it.
0: Meaning that they thought, well, yeah, that's interesting, but it's not really the core issue. And, yes. And for you, this was the core issue.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can explain it better than I can.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then you come across my reaction video to, and well, and then even going further back, uh, Paris Hilton starts to come out and talk about what happened for her. And I'm guessing she reached out to you or you found out about it. How did that process work?
1: Some other survivors that I know who have been advocating for many years. We've all been working, trying to bring awareness to the industry for for many years on and off. We were doing this campaign that um, my friend Jenna Bullis had decided to reactivate called Breaking Code Silence. We decided to take these pictures with, you know, our mouths covered with tape and holding up these signs saying which programs we went to and what happened to us or what issues these places gave us, you know, as everyone has seen. Now they're flooded on the internet, you know. At the same time that we did that, I believe that's the same time that Paris was filming her documentary. Katie McNamara, she was in contact with Paris. She was also in the documentary. She showed Paris, hey, these girls are doing this. There's a lot of other survivors out there doing a lot of different things to bring awareness. And she just happened to show her what we were doing. And Paris liked it. She thought it was cool. She thought it was a great idea. And so she wanted to do it too in the film. I think that's what you see is Katie McNamara showing Paris, hey, this is what other survivors are doing and that's how that came about.
0: Then you watch my reaction video.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I thought I wonder what this guy could do to bring awareness to the to the mental health industry.
0: You know, I know enough about these these camps and they're varied. Uh, the camps that I had worked that I'd seen in mm-hmm. operation with The clients that I worked with uh, ranged from a small little house in Texas with five kids and a pastor that runs it, ranging to large organizations in Utah that have dozens, if not, I don't know, I don't know how many kids, but lots and lots of kids, just revolving door, like the Walmart of the troubled teen industry or the, you know, these, these homes. And Lots of different types of behaviors or lots of different reports as well. Some kids would come back and say, you know, I kind of liked it. And other kids come back would say that they absolutely hated it and that they were traumatized by it. So what would you like for therapists to know?
1: No matter what a child says when they come out, 10 years later, they're going to have some type of trauma stemming from it because there is nothing out of these places that's Actual therapy. If a child comes out of there saying, "Oh, yeah, it was pretty great," I would say that they're brainwashed, <laughs> and give them a few years, and they'll come out of their fog at some point and realize that they have some issues. They're they were trauma. They're traumatized at some point because that's not therapy. And anyone can tell you that's not therapy, right? Attack therapy isn't isn't
0: good for you. Right. I, I'm, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what you're referring to when you say attack therapy, but I, mm-hmm. I, I, know, I know what I've seen, which is that I would not call it therapy. Right. And, See? And, and two, it, it's essentially behavior modification. They're, they're trying to alter behavior and their tactics include essentially punishment and scare tactics to shape behavior. So if a, if a child talks back a lot, for example, they, they will say, okay, we want to stop that behavior. And what we're going to do is we're going to intimidate the child. We're going to threaten the child with putting them in the hole. Like you saw in the documentary, uh, with the parasol documentary, mm-hmm. we will take away food. We'll take away their bed and blanket, We will ridicule them. We'll literally beat them. And this is all an attempt to shape behavior. Right. As I said in my reaction video, that, yeah, that'll that work, but it, at what cost? Because eventually kids will give in, usually, because they're so terrified and so traumatized that they'll give in. But the cost is that you're traumatizing the child, and also the child learns that they can't really trust anybody. They can't trust their parents for having put them in this thing. They can't trust the individuals there. They can't trust clinicians because a lot of times there are clinicians who are employed in these facilities. So those kinds of techniques are sometimes employed and were talked about in the Parasilton documentary. Is, is that what you're talking about when you're talking about attack therapy?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and for instance, where I went at Tranquility Bay in Jamaica, attack therapy was the only type of therapy that we had a girl she had an eating disorder and she was going through a period of time where she wouldn't wasn't eating the therapist said well girls what should we do the group came up with let's get some butcher paper and let's trace her naked body or not naked but like you know just with her underwear on make her fill it up with all the things that she hates about herself and while everyone's screaming at her all of her issues that that we knew like, you know, your dad hates you and it's, it's terrible.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the direct opposite of therapy. It's interesting that they called it therapy (laughs) because it's not resembling any sort of therapy technique that I've ever heard of. (laughs) Um, It Sounds like just flat out abuse.
1: Right. And that's why I feel like it's so hard for survivors to reach out and get help because we were told that that was what therapy was. And so we're scared of it.
0: It just makes me really sad. And I said this in the reaction video that people, while they are being traumatized, which is awful, that's, that's just a terrible thing. But it's this double tragedy that they're also basically compelled to avoid the very thing that they need to recover. Just while we're on the topic of, of this is one. Yeah. A lot of people do not understand the trouble teen industry and, and what it's actually like. Um, it's, A bit of a niche knowledge base that, as a family therapist, I ran into a lot because I worked with a lot of, quote-unquote, troubled teens Mm -hmm. Uh, So in my early career. And um, just by happenstance, learned about these specialty schools just because parents were sending their kids to them. And and that's the only way I learned about it. I never heard about this in graduate school. No supervisor of mine ever talked about it. It was just something that I, I just saw.
1: My first experience, once I was picked up by the transporters who, you know, came into my room in the middle of the night, and there was three of them, took me away. We drove from Snohomish, Washington to Utah in 24 hours. We went to Brightway Hospital first, where where I was for, I think, two weeks before I ended up in Jamaica. While I was there, there was another girl, and she had taken the director's cell phone out of his office, and she called her boyfriend or something. She was f- actually from Utah and, uh, she hid it in the bathroom and she told me, Hey, I hit, I took his phone and I hid it in the bathroom if you want to use it. And so I was like, sure. Cause you know, you're not allowed to talk to your family or call anybody or anything, you know, when you're there. So I went in the bathroom and I called my best friend's house anyway. She wasn't there, but, um, and I put the phone back in the hiding spot and we got caught. Well, I never saw her again, but my punishment was that I got all my clothes taken away and I had nothing but a hospital gown. Then I had to be put in, though then I was put in isolation. I don't know, I don't know how long I was in there. A couple of days. I think I was given like a peanut butter sandwich once a day while I was in there and I was made to sit in stress, uh, stress positions. And then when I was let out, I was, it I was told when I was let out, I was like, I was let out and got my clothes back and everything would be fine. Like I was, my punishment was over, but the director, he decided it was personal because it was his personal cell phone. So he came by and said, Nope, you can let her out, but she doesn't get her clothes back. She has to write a 5,000 word essay. Now once she still has to stay in that hospital gown. So mind you, I'm in general population with other teenage boys as well. And I have nothing, like nothing, nothing else on, but a hospital gown. I'm in another, not, not the regular little classroom, but like another little room at a little desk with my hospital gown. I have to write this 5,000 word essay about what I did with this young male. I don't, he was, he couldn't have been much older than like 18 he he had to have been like a, a graduate himself, screaming at me in my face the whole time, telling me like I was a whore and a slut and this and that. And all you know, that was, that was like my first taste of what the next year of my life was going to be like.
0: So they have an employee who is hired to scream at particular students, verbally abusive, aggressive things. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's what he was doing. To me, I guess he was he was kind of my watchdog, so Did to say. He, wow. he followed me around the whole time.
0: So they have this guy that it's like, okay, we want you to watch her and we want you, and it's okay, or maybe even a directive to berate her, to mm-hmm. punish her for, you know, using the cell phone. Yeah. That is upsetting.
1: That moment, you know, those moments... I think are when I started to realize that I was not going to be able to get through this unless I, I, I really, really, really dug deep. And I think that's when I started to disassociate from myself. Yeah. Which was hard to come back from.
0: That's the fog you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the effective ways that we have as humans to protect ourselves from a, Impossible situation in which we're trapped with the abuser mm-hmm. and the only way to escape is to back away from reality right
1: i I want to tell my story i don't want I don't want pity or anything like that, but I do want people to know what goes on in these places. I want a parent to hear this, I want a parent who's at their wits end to hear this and know, okay, I'm at my wits end with my child, but that's not the direction I want to go,
0: yeah. Well, along those lines, what would you recommend parents do?
1: I would recommend that they do family therapy with a certified therapist, someone who is well-versed in trauma, probably, because there's probably been trauma in the family that's gotten them to this point. Mm. I believe that there's a lot of things that come from trauma in the first place that get kids in these situations of bad behavior. And I don't know. I'm not the therapist. You can... You might disagree with me, but I think that there's like a, like I said, I think there's a lot of things that come from trauma that kind of get kids in this bad behavior cycle to begin with. And then the parents don't know what to do.
0: Yeah, completely agree. And the parents often traumatize themselves uh, as children and are suffering as, as you're pointing out and the reactivity from that trauma um, you know, you, for example, you have par- two parents who came from different sorts of trauma backgrounds, and they're surviving, and they're make they're making the best of life, and they're they're trying their best. And there's lack of awareness in society, and even if they do have awareness, there's a lack of access to competent therapists to help them, and so, or they don't have the health insurance that actually allows for that. Whatever the case is, they're. 35 years old now and they're they're still surviving and they're still often triggered but you know they're doing well enough they have kids and uh, what as they're parenting their young children growing up they're as parents often checking out, maybe dissociating, maybe having trauma triggers, maybe getting depressed, maybe getting anxious, maybe getting distorted in their point of view based on their traumas and it affects the way they parent the kids might affect the conflict between the parents. The kids might observe this, whatever. And, now the, and so the kid is also the, – so the, the, the chain of trauma is just being passed down generation to generation. The kid grows up in a similar traumatic mistreatment environment as the parents did. The kid is now 15 years old and for the first time has the power or the personality to fight back. And to say, I don't like this. I don't like the way I'm being treated. I don't like my life. I don't feel good about myself. Something is wrong. This family is not as good as everyone thinks it is. And and I'm I'm going to do something about it. Now, you know, they're still a child, right? They're they're not a an adult. They're they're still children. Their feelings are valid, but they don't know how to deal with it, right? Right. They don't know who to turn to, and so. You're going to see acting out. You're going to see uh, drug abuse, skipping school, maybe having a temper at school, getting you know getting suspended, maybe expelled. Uh, dr- grades aren't going to be fantastic. Maybe running away from home. Maybe some petty crime, shoplifting, uh, marijuana use, alcohol use. Maybe some sexual activity and the narrative in society often is oh look at that bad kid they just need to be told what to do they you know they need structure they need someone to be consistent with the rules and and i always say that sure i mean if that's what you want to do i guess that could be part of the recipe but the main ingredient in the recipe is Let's look at what got us here. Let's look mm-hmm. at the long chain of traumas that have been passed down from generation to generation. Right. And in the interim, as we do this, we're probably going to see a continuation of acting out by the teen. You know, the, the con- it's not like just explaining this to the teenagers, going to cause the teenager to be like, oh, thank you. <laughs> now I'm going to be a perfect kid. You know, right. they're, they're still angry. They're still upset. They're still suffering quite a bit. Um, you know, I... I can remember sessions with some teenagers where I finally got them to trust me enough, and they would have a lot of, you know, problematic behaviors. And I would realize through, you know, repeated experience that some of these, all of the kids really, but only some of them, would open up and tell me about how much suffering they were experiencing on a minute by minute basis. You know, t- everyone understands that teenage life on a good day is suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, Imagine if you're, uh, you've never had a safe relationship. You've never been able to just, you know, relax relationally and, and trust other people and and love yourself and, and Mm -hmm. have that space, you know? Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, you're, you're gonna have some, unbridled emotion and behaviors about that. And then because this cultural notion of like, well, they just need structure, then these specialty programs, specialty schools crop up to fill that market, you know, because there's a cultural understanding that creates a market, you know, similar to we tell women that they can't look a certain way, that they have to look a certain way. Well, when we do that to people, these terrible notions that we tell people, then a market will emerge to say, hey, you know, if you hate your body, I know how to fix your body and, and you can, you know, go under the knife and we'll fix you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, markets will always crop up to meet any sort of need, whether it's misguided or not. And so that's where these specialty schools come around. And they're, they're doing exactly what the culture wants them to do, which is these kids need to be told what's up. These kids need to be they put in their it. place. Yeah, these kids need to be, um, you know, given consistent rules, and eventually they'll, like a horse, they'll be broken, and mm-hmm. they'll they'll be good after that. You know, they'll be good kids after that. And it, it's just a false, unscientific notion, and 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 it's just perpetuating, piling on the abuse on an already abused person.
1: You are so right. Not to mention, I don't know if you know a lot about the um, seminars and things that we went through. No. At the schools, the WASP schools specifically, had these very intense, some you know, three day seminars that came through monthly. We had to graduate this uh, set these sessions of seminars to be able to like move up in the program, and they were very they were shrouded in secrecy, and they were extremely psychologically just effed. I can't, I'm like, there's no other way to explain it. Now now we know they were based on cult practices all the way back to straight incorporated. Extremely, extremely, extremely just messed up.
0: And you went, you went through that? Yeah. So I'm guessing if it is like a cult, it is trying to strip the identity of the individuals. Does, was that involved in it? Yeah. And also trying to... Uh, through influence, through charisma, trying to get the followers to follow. Was that part of it?
1: Yeah, pretty much. And then also just exhausting us, exhausting us, pushing us to our limits. And then once we all kind of break and explode, like, then, like, love us. And, oh, you know, like, we're saving you. We're your saviors, kind of like that, you know? Right. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a tried and true cult practice that is done by all sorts of organizations. It's uh, you tear the military. We all understand boot camp. You you tear the person down. You strip their identity. And then you redefine their identity for them. Um, Mm -hmm. You you tell them uh, that this is who you are now. You are now a wonderful person as long as you're following me. And, and now the the pain will stop because mm-hmm. you're now f- fully physically and mentally in the palm of my hand, which, and if you don't do that, then there's going to be bad consequences. Um, and look at everyone else. Everyone else is in the palm of my hand, so you better be as well.
1: Yeah. It, there was Those were some pretty messed up things. And you had to, you had to, um, get through those seminars or you couldn't, you couldn't advance. So if you got kicked out of one, oh, there was hell to pay and you didn't, it wasn't called kicked out. It, it would be called, oh, you chose out. <laughs> you chose out. So then right. it was all put back on you. Yeah. So like you could stand up and, and say, hi, my name is Kate. And the, the facilitator could just not like the way you said your name, she could say it, there was one actual one woman who was a facilitator. The rest were men. Um, she she might say, mm, I don't think you said your name with enough confidence. You're done. That, I mean, like, it was just, there was no reasons ever. No good reasons ever. It was just whichever way the wind was blowing.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's how cults operate. You know, there's yeah. sort of an, a weird effect when you have arbitrary punishment and disapproval that puts everyone on edge and puts everyone in this constant state of like, I better please this person. I, mm-hmm. you know, I have to really pay attention to how they feel about me. Otherwise very, very bad things are going to happen to me. And you, you do that for a sustained amount of time. And eventually you just learn subconsciously. It's better to not think for yourself. Cause if you think for yourself, then bad things are going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. It's pretty awful.
1: Yeah. And I mean the bad, bad things happened And I mean the, Oh, those places, those things, those seminars were terrible, terrible, terrible things. They would have girls reenact their traumas that they, that had happened to them in their childhood, like reenact their rapes, their molestations. Oh, it was, it would be, it was awful. Girls would be forced to go around to the boys and, and say, oh, you know, like, yo, you know, you want my body. I want to suck you off for drugs like things like that like because we were you know we they told all the girls we were all sluts and we all just wanted um just wanted to use boys for you know whatever they could give us
0: my god
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it was awful it was Uh, i mean like it's it's hardcore
0: all right let's take a break and when we get back let's continue the conversation the reason why not every community has these sorts of schools is because most areas have laws that protect the rights of humans including mm-hmm. teenagers but some areas do not utah right. i don't know all the laws but utah must have relaxed laws about child yeah. rights because There's so um, and them. and i was eerie as i was watching the paris documentary cuz early on as I was reacting, I was like, oh, I wonder if she's talking about, uh, you know, these sorts of schools that that I worked with back in the day. And I, and I started talking about Utah. Cause, and I always thought that Utah was just the closest state that had these sorts of schools. But then when I heard Paris Hilton being in New York was dragged to Utah as so well, I was like, oh, maybe Utah is like one of the only places in the United States that has these kinds of relaxed laws. And then you have Mexico, and then you mentioned Samoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, in jamaica right mm-hmm. so there it's no it's not like they want to have these schools in jamaica and samoa and mexico they just have to because if they operated within your local area they would be breaking the law and so mm-hmm. we have laws for reasons <laughs> they're not bad laws they're good laws that protect human rights. You can't imprison people. You you can't use force to uh, essentially imprison innocent human beings. You can't abuse them. You can't do, you know, all the sorts of things that you're talking about. That it's it's abuse. It's wrong. And when you operate in these other jurisdictions, then they're free to do whatever they want to because the laws aren't, you know, there or the regulation isn't there. Right. Or the enforcement isn't there, or whatever and right. and I remember hearing that too. I remember hearing about the schools in Utah, and you know kids would come back and tell me what happened. but then the stuff I heard about the schools across the border, like in mexico were were usually a lot worse
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's it usually just a lot
1: more physical,
0: yeah, a lot of physical kinds of mm-hmm. things, and I just thought, well, that can't be right, <laughs> like there's no How is this happening? And the other thing that I'll say is that the reason some people might be thinking, well, maybe it's not that bad, you know, because if it was that bad, we would have heard about it a long time ago. Well, there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't have heard about it. One is that. Children, no one believes children anyway. So right. when, when kids talk about things, people are like, wow, well, you know, that kid probably is deserved it, totally, it or something. They're or they're lying kids. or, or something like that. So even on good scenarios, people don't listen to kids. Uh, the other thing is, is that these are kids that are, have dis- been designated as difficult kids. Mm-hmm. These are, these are troubled teens. And most people don't like teenagers anyway. And the troubled teens, well, all bets are off. Like everything they're saying is completely suspect.
1: Right. When our parents put us into these places, one of the first things that they uh, tell our parents is, if, uh, if your child alleges any type of abuse or mistreatment, that is just them manipulating you. That is just them trying to come home. All the kids do it. Just ignore it they're, they're going to do it. Just, just know that they're going to try. They're going to try. So just ignore it, that it's just manipulation. It's all lies. You know, your child lies. So just, just know, you know, of course, of course we're not abusing them. So that's one. So your parents are already being brainwashed themselves to, uh, believe that you're lying when you try to tell them you're being abused. Number two, if you do try to tell your parents and you get caught, you get punished. So that's, there's your, it's, it's like a, a lose, lose situation there. And then by the time you're out, like the day you get out, you're so brainwashed by that point, you just keep your mouth shut until you finally start to come out of the fog, which is, you know, years later.
0: Right. Uh, and you're just so happy to be out and, uh, and you also don't want to go back. And so you know that, or you've been conditioned to believe that if you speak for yourself, or even recognize who you are in your own feelings, then that leads to you being thrown in in the hole with just a hospital gown. Uh, and you know, it's a powerful thing. Cults are a powerful thing. Brainwashing is a powerful thing. And um, and they are they have market reasons to do that. You know, they, it they make money, and their stockholders make money when. They are very effective at brainwashing kids. Now, having said all that, which, you know, is 100% real and, and needs to be addressed, there are some people that I did work with who years later would say that it was a positive experience. Maybe not the WASP schools, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. But, like, I remember this one kid went to this, uh, like the one I described, it was like a small Texas uh boarding school and there weren't any of those tactics from what i understand and it was for him as a i think he was around 17 he just liked it because he was getting away from his family and from the chaos and he f- you know flourished in that in that space and and came back fulfilled and kind of ready to start the next phase of his life so um an investigation needs to be done on all the various different schools you know an Mm -hmm. objective outside investigation that because there might be something that we can learn from some of these programs maybe you know what are the programs that are working that aren't using brainwashing that are helpful that that do give the kid a choice on some level um, what can be done there and what are the schools that are obviously problematic and and what do we need to do? The, the other reason why you might not have heard about it, people, is that when people are abused, they don't want to talk about it because they're ashamed of themselves because we stigmatize it. We stigmatize victims of all kinds. And so when people come out, they you know they might have an inkling to talk about it, but they know that if they do speak out about it, someone's going to attack them. They're going to be like, well, it must have been your fault or you must have asked for it or you're confused or something like that. And that's why Kate and others are brave and doing a public service by stepping forward and incurring that stigma for the greater good.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it is, it's, it's scary. It's, it is scary. But, you know, I'm 40 years old. No one can call me a troubled teen anymore. I have my own, my own teens now. <laughs> and uh, I can tell you, I can tell you for sure, I would never in a million years send them away, no matter what. Yeah. If anything ever happens, we are going to deal with it all together as a family. I will do anything, anything I possibly can to fix, to help to nurture, to support, to, you know, push them along into adulthood. Never, 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 never send them away. Never make them someone else's problem.
0: Yeah. And as a family therapist that worked with a lot of troubled teens, so to speak, for, I don't know, the first 10 years of my career, I'll tell you that, you know, 99.9% of the families I worked with couldn't afford to send kids to these schools, so uh, we had to make do with doing things other than that, um, or they didn't want to send the kids to the school or whatever. But cool. yeah, um,
1: they're very expensive.
0: Yeah, they were very. I mean, uh, I talked about this in one of my reaction videos. That I remember one mother, she wasn't even particularly rich, but she took out a second mortgage because you know it was something like eighty thousand dollars or something, and mm-hmm. she didn't have that laying around in the bank, and so. So, and that's an average school. That's not that's not like the primo Mm-mm. specialty school. That's like just like the typical That's like
1: one of the cheaper ones actually. Right. <laughs>
0: right, that's just like a typical school. Yeah. And so, cuz you're paying for a prison. You're paying mm-hmm. for food and guards and buildings and, you know, so-called therapists and blah blah, blah. anyway. Sure. So, the thing that I would do with families is we'd have to do everything else. We'd have to do the family therapy route, and it's very complex and its case-by-case basis, but uh, the theme that I found was always present was a reorientation of the focus by the family, and the parents in particular. You know, we're taught as parents that we're responsible for our kids' behavior, which is a good thing. You know, you don't want we don't want kids just running wild in the streets or doing terrible things. It's up to the parents to to address it, right? Well, right. for various reasons, you'll have, you know, kids that are traumatized or some other cause, and their behavior has crossed a threshold. And the response and the recommendation from society is like, well, you just have to increase your discipline. You just have to become more intense. Because, you know, we all learn that as parents, you you have a kid who uh, takes a cookie from the cookie jar, and you're like, okay, Johnny, um, don't do that. So you reprimand. And then he takes another cookie out of the cookie jar the next day. And you're like, okay, um, you don't get any more cookies for the rest of the week. And then the next day, he takes another cookie out of the cookie jar. And you're like, okay, you're going to go to timeout. Or, you know, we escalate. And, and we learn through experience that that usually works, you know, eventually the kid will be like, okay, I guess that, you know, some my
1: parents, kids. <laughs> yeah,
0: not all kids, right, not yeah. all kids, right, so most kids or some kids will learn, well, she's using her stern voice, so I must really be in trouble, so I, I probably should stop. Now, for whatever reason, trauma or otherwise, ADHD, there's various different things that can uh, sort of throw a wrench in that system. You'll have some kids that just don't respond to an escalation discipline and discipline, and by the when they're 10 years old they're usually a lot easier to handle when they turn 13 all bets are off that's when the s hits the fan right and the kid now is just like uh you know you can't stop me and i'm going to do all these sorts of things not always but this is the families i would be working with a lot of times and the recommendation from sometimes from a lot of therapists is like well you just got to increase your discipline you just got to you know, take the door off of their room and take away all their things and yeah. ground no. them forever and uh, never buy them another present for for Christmas or, you know, th- these – and I would watch this fail over and over and over again. And so I would uh, work with the parents with, look, I'm on your side. I I agree that your kid is – Exhibiting extremely problematic Behavior they're smoking pot In the middle of school they're smoking pot They stole three cars In a week they uh, Are threatening To kill you in the middle of the night These are these are bad behaviors I'm, I'm 100% <laughs> Kind of validate your Concern your feelings It's good that you're concerned What do we do about it though is the question Because the Key to all families and all child development is that the child believes that you love them, that the child believes and knows that they can trust you. You know, when all bets are off, the child knows, well, I know my mom and dad love me. And if you cannot establish that, Then the kid will really go off the rails. That's when things really become problematic because kids, you know, they're going to do kid stuff, but they want to know that they're lovable no matter what, that there's an unconditional love. And and so as the parents will escalate their discipline and also just have normal emotional reactivity, their resentment would build up, their distance would build, and they would find after you know a few years of this that there's zero love, in fact only contempt between parents and children. And so I would try to orient the family more towards the bond in spite of the bad behavior. It's like, you know, we need a baseline foundation of love and and bond. And that was really hard for a lot of parents because they would say to me, well, what do you mean? I'm just supposed to like let it go? And I'd be like, no. We'll get to it later, you know, but we have to establish the foundation of a family, which is love, attachment, you know, goodwill, and then we can get to the other stuff. Um, but that took a lot of convincing. I would spend months on parents because for them, they grew up in traumatized situations themselves and probably weren't loved enough by their parents. Right. And so they didn't even know what that looked like, and they certainly didn't feel like Their kid deserved it because they didn't get it when they were growing up. And so then we have to go into their histories and sort of help them heal from their traumas so that they can be more open to their own children. It was a lot of work and it was never easy. And it took me over time learning how to be essentially very convincing to people (laughs) (laughs) because I I was essentially laying out an argument that was – a hundred percent counter to what's being taught to them and right. potentially told to them by schools and other therapists. And uh, it, it was very hard. <laughs> I'll tell you, it was, I was not always successful. And, um, no,
1: because parents don't want to hear that they're the problem, right? Or that they are part of the problem, right? Or that they bred the problem. Yeah. But it's not that it's, you know, and all of the survivors I've talked to over the years, hundreds and hundreds of survivors, I, that is a common theme that their, their parents had trauma, their parents, parents had trauma, trauma breeds trauma. My mother had trauma. Her mother had trauma. And I'm, we're talking, we're, we are talking like, like grade A trauma <laughs> stuff that you're, you would just be like, Oh, Wow. Like, that is deep. Like, that is deep drama, you know? Yeah. And you you just, you can't get away from it. Like, no wonder. No wonder I was out running around town, you know, every single day after school, not doing my homework, running around with boys or, you know, running around with my girlfriends and smoking pot and whatever I was doing, you know. And I was from a nice family. My parents were very nice, well-respected people. They both worked nice jobs. My, we had money, you know. Nothing I didn't want for anything, but, man, I wanted for love and attention because they both had so much trauma in their own past that they just didn't have enough, like, love to give me, you know? So I think that was what made me go a little sideways as a teenager. And so you're, you're right on the money. You are right on the money. These schools are not the answer. They are not the answer. Loving your kids more is the answer.
0: Yeah. And to lay out uh, the common thing that I would see with teens, because you look at the behavior and because, you know, teens come across often like they don't care anyway, because they care so much that, they're so scared of that vulnerability that they try to act like they don't care. But oh, yeah. you know, teenagers deeply, deeply care about their parents and their families and, you know, being accepted. And But they're so terrified of that, particularly if they've been traumatized, that they try to act like they're not. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they're 15 years old and uh, terribly insecure but acting like they're not, terribly dependent, trying to act like they're not. And they're at school and they feel terrible about themselves They might have a a history with a couple other kids in the class. They might have a history negatively with the teacher. And they don't know who to turn to. And they don't even know their own emotions because they were never given a chance to think about it. They don't trust other human beings because no one's ever really been there for them. And so they're just a ball of suffering and distress sitting in class, whereas the kid right next to them doesn't have any of that distress. And so you're 15 years old and you're just like, you have nowhere to turn you you're you're just, you're in distress and you don't trust other people you don't even know what's going on with you you're just looking for something to distract yourself well there's a lot of things that are very distracting um, marijuana one will distract because the whole procedure of sort of scoring it and you know figuring out a place to smoke it but also the substance will sometimes numb feelings and make mm-hmm. the distress go away Uh, sex will numb it. Alcohol will numb it. Uh, Skipping school so that, because, you know, to be distressed, you know, all of us understand this, that if you're in a bad mood or you're sick, doing, going to work or going to school is double problem, right? It's like, not only do you feel miserable, but now you are in a place you don't want to be. You'd much rather, if you're suffering physically or emotionally, you'd much rather be in sort of the best case scenario. Well, school is not best case scenario. Hanging out with your friends is, Behind the dumpster is the best-case scenario. That's a a relaxing, (laughs) safe place, you know? So you're sitting there in class, and you're suffering. And and when you get caught, and you're in trouble, and you're pulled into the vice principal's office, and your parents are called, and they're just like, why did you do that? You don't say, oh, well, I have trauma, and mom and dad, you have trauma, too. And so, you know, I'm just looking for some way to get through my day, and I'm really sorry I did it. I just – I just don't know what else to do because I'm, I'm a kid and I'm, you know, kids don't say that, right? They say, because I wanted to, you asshole. That's right. what they say. Because you're a terrible parent. Because this school is bullshit. That's what they say. But as a therapist, you have to be able to see through that and you have to be able to know that there's, there's a reason for all that. And when you get called into these, Families, you have to help everyone understand that. And that was a lot of my job, honestly, was uh, I would say, I don't know, a good 5%, 10% of the work that I did with families was actually therapizing the schools. Was I would go to the schools and I'd be like, okay, so let me help you understand where that behavior is coming from. And they would appreciate it. They'd be like, oh, that makes a lot of sense you know, because it's so tempting to just say this is a bad person. This mm-hmm. child is a bad child. You know, it's very tempting to do that. And I get it because it's very frustrating. You feel like a failure as a parent or a teacher because you're trying and it's not working. And so it's terrifying to think, wait, is this my fault? Is this some sort of deficiency for me? Well, how about we all just decide this is a bad child? This is just a bad kid. You know, that that'll relinquish us. You know, that'll save us all. And the kid will agree. Yeah, I am a bad person, you know? And and so that's what I would see. And it didn't make it easy <laughs> to deal with as a therapist because it wasn't like I was not a victim of the child's abuse sometimes. but yeah. uh, But th- this was the perspective that when I did see success – This is what was the beginning of the success. It wasn't the full story because there were a lot of things you had to do after that. But that, the attitude of understanding where it comes from, conceptualizing, believing, understanding that the child is suffering way more than the other kids are and they have no other way of dealing with it, um, understanding that, building the bond, um, just trying to lower the distress for the child, that was the beginning of what would work for them. But there's so few people out there that understand that. And frankly, you know, uh, only a percentage of family therapists even understand that.
1: Well, hopefully more start to understand that uh, because hopefully a lot of these places get shut down.
0: Is that your hope? Yeah. Is that going to happen?
1: Right now there's a petition uh, on uh, change.org that you can sign to um, hopefully – shut down uh, the Provo Canyon School, the one that was in the documentary of This is Paris. That is a large, that is one of the large, that's one of the big players. Provo Canyon School, one of the big players in the TTI. The belief is if we can get Provo shut down, it will start a domino effect. We can start getting some others, you know, shut down. It'll kind of just
0: I would also say, and maybe y'all are thinking about this as well, is that the laws have to be changed.
1: There's a lot of legislative work going on in the background as well. It's really difficult. It's been, I mean, years and years, 20 years, it's been, we've been, you know, survivors have been trying to get the laws changed. Um, You know, we get shut down quite a bit because it's a lot of good old boys playing the game as well. and
0: Well, money's involved, right? Yeah,
1: and b- multi-billion dollar industry.
0: Right. But given the awareness that is that Paris Hilton is helping with, uh, maybe y'all will get it done this time.
1: I hope so. You know, we've never had a platform this big to shout from, so hopefully we're, we're in it for the long game. So, you know, we're not going to give up. And, uh, you know, this isn't about me. This isn't about Paris. This, this isn't about, um, necessarily, you know, all the survivors that are out there plugging away at all of our little projects. But, you know, this, this is about the kids that are in the schools right now that are suffering and being abused. When, when I say that, I mean the petition to get the school shut down because, that's what's happening. The you know, there's children in the school right now being abused. Right. So, yeah. Go to change.org and sign that posit- that petition.
0: Shut down the abusive Provo Canyon school. Currently, there's about 80,000 that have signed and they they want to get to 150,000 people.
1: So, shut down the abusive Provo Canyon school at change.org.
0: All right, Kate. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for doing your part to raise awareness for this. Uh, it's definitely something that I have been thinking about for a long time. I and, you know, this documentary and you have, you know, increased my awareness because up until watching the documentary and talking to you, I just had my own ex- my own anecdotes, my own experience with the kids and the families which was limited. And I thought, well, maybe I just had a bad sort of batch there. But to hear all the stories, you're just like, whoa, I was just seeing the tip of the iceberg with the kids that I was working with. And we we definitely need to change this. Um, it's It's on its face unethical to treat any yeah. human being this way. And it's obvious. And right. as an addition, and that I would hope that, people here is we don't want to take away a tool without providing a good tool, which is competent wraparound services with a competent family therapist.
1: Right. I wanted to say that uh, it's not just parents sending their kids to these facilities. Washington state actually sends foster youth and at-risk youth out of state To unlicensed facilities under IEPs, juvenile justice alternatives, and foster care, all paid for by uh, taxpayers.
0: Wow. Mm Hmm. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Kate. Let's take a break, and when we get back, I'm going to read some emails from listeners. All right, that's my interview with Kate Smith. She wanted me to tell everyone that if you want to reach out to her, you can find her on Instagram at katesmith.pnw. That's Pacific Northwest or P-N-W, katesmith.pnw. All right, let's read some emails from other people. Charlotte from Georgia writes, Thank you for covering Paris's documentary. I was wondering if you could cover other WASP program seminars. I just wondered what your perspective was if it came from anything remotely good. All I know is it ripped me open psychologically and hurt many other people. And to this day, I still have to force myself to not just totally wall off from others. End of email. Yeah. So the WASP seminars refer to the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs. And schools. This is the WASP program. And in the, I don't know, I wasn't there and I couldn't find any super reliable detailed descriptions of what was happening. But we heard Kate Smith actually describe some of that. And for Charlotte from Georgia, she's saying something similar that they would call this therapy, but it wasn't clinical. And in these schools, they'll say, okay, we're going to do this form of quote unquote therapy, but as far as I know, and you know, maybe if they were here, they could defend themselves, but as far as I can tell, these were just ways of breaking people down and abusing people into compliance, and then they just slapped the name therapy on it because then if anyone was auditing them or if parents were looking into it, they could say, well, this is a therapy program instead of calling it what it is, which is a abusive program. I don't know. I'd have to see the research. I'd have to see it actually in action, but from what I can tell what they would do is they had a pretty they they had, it it's interesting cuz in a in a certain way these programs were allowed to do whatever they wanted to for decades and they were developing this way of controlling people's behavior. That was away from, from what I can tell, eyes of the academic community or the therapeutic community. And I think they were discovering some very interesting things. You know, it's sort of like how the Nazis were experimenting on their prisoners in a very unethical way. And we actually learned a lot from that. There's actually research from that that we we learned from in this extremely unethical research. And... Because, you know, if you want to research, okay, how do you control people's minds, you can't really do that ethically, right? So uh, these programs have been essentially learning how to do that away from any kind of scrutiny. And from what I can tell, they developed – and this is only based on limited information – they developed essentially a program of cult brainwashing of people – a way of breaking people down and their identities. You know, Kate actually talked a little bit about that as well. And now Charlotte is talking about it as well, how she's saying it ripped me open psychologically. And to this day, she has, she has to force herself to not totally wall off from others. And, you know, this is very concerning, right? That we have these programs that could be using some of these tactics. Now, I suspect that many of these programs are not using these tactics or are uh, using you know, good tactics, if we will. But the fact is, is from what I understand, we don't have enough uh, eyes on the situation, right? Because it's there's not enough awareness about what's going on over there. Anyway, let's read another email here from Elizabeth. And she was Elizabeth Martin in the film. This is another – one of the women from the Paris Hilton documentary. I saw your reaction videos regarding Paris's documentary. Paris and I were in Provo Canyon together. I was very sick with anorexia. Paris and I had the same therapist. So we had group two times a week for at least two hours together. Paris was an amazingly kind and authentic teenager. Paris was super smart. I can absolutely corroborate her allegations of abuse that happened at the school. I'm okay now. I have five fantastic kids, a career, and a husband who is amazing. I still struggle with PTSD, but I do pretty well. One thing that these facilities do is, is fail to address the family system that led to these issues and then often send girls right back to those situations. For me, when I disclosed sexual abuse at the school that I'd been through – the PhD therapist said, that's how, uh, that's how the person showed love. So I just want to read that sentence again because it's just awful. For me, when I, dis- when I disclosed the sexual abuse I had been through, the PhD therapist said, that's how that person showed love to you. These facilities also use seclusion and restraint punitively. The medical neglect that occurred co- cost me my- a lot of kidney function and lung function. A few of the really insidious after-effects of these places like Provo that are overlooked are the people often, you know, the kids often develop a fear of therapy and psychiatrists, and the abusive practices in these schools leave us as easy pickings for abusive partners in the future. I used what happened to me as motivation to be successful. Being an attorney who specializes in child-victim advocacy Seems to be one way I could help prevent other kids from going through what we did. While there, Paris was the mother hen to the younger kids. She truly is a great person. Paris has a lot of depth to her. Depth to her. I'm really happy others will see that now. End of email. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to say other than the words speak for themselves there. All right, going on to another email here from Jillian. She writes, And by the way, I have permission to read all these emails, and I asked them explicitly if they wanted to remain anonymous, and none of them did. They just said, oh, I want want my name to be out there because I want to stand proud and tall. Jillian says, hi, Dr. Kirk. I was watching your recent podcast on the Paris Hilton documentary where you talked about wilderness therapy and boarding schools. I went to both wilderness and therapeutic boarding schools as well. My, my older sister also went to residential treatment. Me and my sister had very different outcomes from these boarding schools. My experience in wilderness was really good for me. My sister is bipolar and struggled with drug addiction and abusive relationships, so I think her time and treatment mostly just kept her sober for a couple years. When she came back, she pretty much went back to everything that had gotten her sent away and eventually was doing even worse than before. She definitely resents our parents for sending her there. The wilderness program that I went to claims a pretty high success rate. However, the people I graduated with have varied a lot in their experiences after graduation. So it's really hard for me to believe those claims. End of email. All right. So for Jillian, she's saying for her sister, it was similar, I guess, to Paris and to Kate and Elizabeth and these other people about what they went through but for Jillian she's she's like well I went to one of these things and you know it's it's pretty good for me I really I really enjoyed it. it it was an opportunity for me to get some therapy or out into the wilderness meet new people change some perspectives whatever and yeah i think that's important that's an important part of this is that it's really program dependent and uh, i in the reaction videos that i made i talked about how I had a supervisee who actually did this sort of work. I had a student, someone that I knew pretty well. He did this prior to becoming a therapist. In fact, I think he might have even became a therapist because he wanted to be a clinician at these at this wilderness school that he that he was in charge of. Actually, it's a very small operation, and I think he might have been with one other person. But at any rate, he would uh, take. Adults or teenagers, and so there was a teen version and then there was an adult version, and the people would hike out into the woods together, and there would be a few days where you'd camp out all together, and there would be activities, and you'd talk about your feelings, and then for a number of days, each participant would be uh, escorted to a, a part of the wilderness far away from the camp, the main camp. And the individuals were expected to stay in that place by themselves without anyone else, with no tent and no food, only water. And for several days, they just sat there and thought or, you know, played with the fish or the frogs or whatever they did, you know, for a number – for the teen version, it was something like for a few days and for the adult version, I think it was like for a full week or something. And – It was voluntary, so the kids weren't forced into it, and obviously the adults weren't forced into it. And then you you brought the kids back in, or you brought the adults back in, and then you had sort of a wrap-up set of days where there'd be more talks about your feelings and about what you experienced and bonding, and then you'd go home. And uh, from my supervisee's perspective, it was a wonderful thing, and the way he described it, it sounded really great. So these types of programs are extremely varied. You have that situation where the kids sign up for it. They actually say, oh, my God, that sounds amazing to get away from all the screens and the gadgets. And, you know, my friend went through it and it sounded amazing. And and I like the outdoors and, you know, mom, dad, sign me up. I want to go. So you have those kinds of schools uh, or programs, or whatever we want to call it, and then we have the sort that are presented in the Parasilton documentary, where it's essentially a prison that sends kids into jails to be abused. And I, I, you know, I don't use those terms lightly. Uh, the kids are under lock and key. They are forced to take medications. They're they're forced to uh, be in isolation. They are physically abused. And uh, in the United States, these exist in abroad. So you have schools in Mexico and Jamaica, apparently. I didn't know about that one. In Guam, I hadn't heard about that one until Kate talked about it. So um, there's a wide variety. And that's, that's part of the problem is that it, to just blanketly say all these programs need to be shut down is ignorant of that variability. What needs to be happening is auditing is an outside auditor that looks into these programs and makes sure that they follow certain ethical guidelines. There needs to be essentially an ethical code, especially in the United States. I mean, I guess you could say, well, you know, if, if these uh, organizations exist in other countries, it's going to be hard to regulate that. But you also could pass legislation that could make it illegal for parents in the United States to send kids willingly to some of these programs I mean, we, ha- as I was saying, in, in, when I was talking with Kate, that we have laws about child welfare for a reason, and th- these programs arguably are, uh, you know, violently breaking these laws. So, so anyway, for Jillian, she's like, I had a great time, and my sister had a terrible time. So, uh, as we move into this, I, and the hashtag Code Silence, it is propagated, we need to we need to be nuanced in our approach. Because if we're not, I'm worried that some programs are going to come forward and say, like, um, we are not being abusive to our kids. And several people are going to come forward, like Jillian, and say, I actually had a great time. And if we just say, well, they're lying, or they don't really know the truth or something, then the movement is going to lose credibility. It would be like, in the me too movement saying that all movie producers are sexually assaulting people around them and using their power to abuse people or any man in power is abusing people that would invalidate the movement. So in the same way, we can't say that every single one of these schools is doing something horrible to kids. What we need to be saying is some of them are, and the way our system works the the kids have no power to speak out, and some of the kids, as Kate was pointing out, will report they did th- that the schools were going well for them. But they were, but they're actually dissociating or brainwashed or too afraid to tell the truth. So we we just have to change how the system works because some of these schools can absolutely exist for sure. All right, going on to another email here. Um, This is from Katie. This is not to be confused with Kate. So we have a Katie and we have a Kate. So this is from Katie. I watched your video responding to Paris Hilton's experience and your review of wilderness camps. I'm a practicing therapist who used to be a therapist at a therapeutic wilderness camp, and I just wanted to contribute a bit. While I agree that it is an extremely traumatic experience to be gooned, as the kids call it, Chiming in here, the gooned, meaning, you know, goons actually grab the kids. It's interesting because I never heard of the term to be gooned, but that's the way I used to refer to it. I used to say like, oh, so you're hiring two goons to come grab to grab your kid. So uh, the email, while I agree, while I while I agree that it is an extremely traumatic experience to be gooned, as the kids call it. For most of the families we worked with, it was a very last resort for the parents. You recommended a good family therapist as a solution, but most parents couldn't even fathom having their teens cooperate with family therapy. The kids' behavior were usually too far gone. While I agree that trust and respect can be sure, uh, that trust and respect can for sure be broken because of the quote unquote imprisonment, as you put it. I found that the most beneficial aspects of the camps is that it's a slap in the face and a removal from their dysfunctional patterns that they're so entrenched in. It's a chance to slow life down and realize that their patterns weren't working. I did end up leaving that position at the wilderness camp, and a big part of my decision was the ethical dilemma about forcing teens into therapy. I'd like to know more about what ideas you have for these situations where kids are running away, actively suicidal, on drugs, severe oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, etc., cetera, where it feels far too late for the family relationships uh, for family therapy to even be possible. End of email. Right, so essentially Katie's saying, I used to be a therapist at one of these camps and I don't think you understand how, Horrible some of these kids behavior can be, you know, the kids are just completely out of control. And I find that, you know, it works, because it's sort of like a slap in the face. And, you know, a, a sort of a wake up call, if you will, a removal from their pattern gives them a chance to sober up and that kind of thing. And that just, you know, to suggest that these people should just use family therapy is short sighted, because a lot of these kids will refuse to go to family therapy. Okay. Yeah, 100%. I mean, my specialty or, you know, one of my specialties in my early career, I haven't worked with kids and teenagers and I don't know, directly in probably 10 years or something. But in the first 10, I don't know, 10 to 13 years of my career, I, a, a good, well, especially the first five years, I would say, first seven years. Let's just put it that way. I don't know why I'm being so micro about this. But so let's say the first seven years, about half my clients were these troubled teens. So think about that, like 40 hours a week, and 20 of those hours, week in, week out was spent working with families that had teenagers like this. So it was very much a part of my life. And a lot of people referred these people to me because, one, I became known for treating them, and two, because I was a young man myself. I was in my late 20s, and I looked really young, and a lot of teenagers felt like they could relate to me or something, and a lot of parents thought that—because a big concern for a lot of parents is, well, we don't want some old fuddy-duddy therapist because our teenage client isn't going to bond with them. What we want is a young therapist— and a lot of these clients were were boys, so I and there aren't a lot of male therapists. So anyway, I got a lot of these clients, and and a lot of them were Asian Americans too, by the way, <laughs> uh, because I'm Asian American, and a lot of them were adopted because there's a lot of adopted Asian American teenagers who are having issues with their behavior. But anyway, so yeah, absolutely, I would see just completely out of control behavior and aggressive hostile behavior towards me so it wasn't like i didn't experience the problems i mean believe me i i was ground zero and i did in-home therapy too so i most of these clients i'm talking about i went to the home and i would go to uh court with them i i would visit them in in detention you know because a lot of these kids would have at-risk youth petitions or chins petitions i won't go into details on that but they would be put in, in uh, detention for a couple weeks and I would actually go into the prison essentially. I don't know the technical term for it but I would go in there and I would visit these kids and there were various different of these lockdown prisons for kids. There was the main one which is on Capitol Hill and there were other smaller ones. But anyway, I was intimate with the probation officers and the social workers and the parents and the judges and the lawyers like you know, this was my bread and butter for a long time. And, yeah, it's very, very difficult. And to just say, just send a family therapist in there, yeah, that if if that's how I came across, that's definitely not what my uh, message here is. What I want to say is just a little bit more detailed, which is that, and as I was talking to Kate, I think you heard me talk about it, is that you need a family therapist that really knows what they're doing when it comes to these kinds of teenagers. And they're out there. There are a lot of family therapists, um, some of whom are colleagues of mine or supervisees of mine, friends of mine who are very, very good at this kind of work because it really takes a particular kind of family therapist to deal with this situation. You have to be a very charismatic therapist in my view. Uh, the family therapists that I refer people to are very extroverted and they don't, they don't sit back in the chair and listen all the time like you got to lean in you got to be with the families you got to get involved and it can get pretty chaotic sometimes and you have to be interesting to the family because if you're boring then the, the sessions just become kind of like venting sessions and and family good family therapy for situations like this You've got to get really involved and you've got to have a ton of compassion. But you also have a you also have to be a strong assertive therapist, you know? Because if you don't, you're just gonna walked all over. Now, I'm talking about the family therapist that I know. There's probably other kinds of approaches, but this is what I found to really work. And the the thing that I found was, and I talked about this a little bit with Kate in the interview, was that it, and it's very, very complex. But the kinds of things that I found that I – and I and I was never taught this. I just learned this trial by fire. <laughs> like, you know, I went to graduate school for family therapy. There wasn't a single lecture or book that prepared me for these kinds of families. You know, systems theory and family therapy education only goes so far. And when I experienced these families, I was like uh, – yeah, I mean some of the theories I learned – apply kind of here but there's so much confusion and detail here what is how hap- so this is my developed sort of guideline that I that I used and um, one is lowering expectations for the parents because usually the parents still retained expectations that their kid was going to be the sort of kid that they could have a bumper sticker about you know my kid's an honor student that kind of thing and their adherence to that expectation was preventing them from realizing the reality. And, and a lot of that had to do with grief. A lot of parents, there's a lot of crying, you know, a lot of like just giving up on their dreams of having a kid that uh, was the sort of kid they thought they were going to have when the kid was seven. You know, when the kid was seven, she was so sweet. And now she's like this holy terror and so that was one thing. Another thing is to get the whole family to slow down because there's such – there's a temptation to dramatize every little detail. You know, Her room is dirty and, and they would just frantically try to address it right then and there. And I'd be like, okay, let's slow down. It's not an emergency. If, if there's no blood or no risk of blood – and I would literally have to tell people that. I'd be like, is – you know, her cleaning her room is that going to lead to someone bleeding out and dying? <laughs> because if if that if not, then let's slow down. It's not an emergency. And like we were saying in the interview, a lot of these parents have been traumatized themselves, and a lot of these parents were single parents, by the way. Another thing that we worked on was trying to build a bond, trying to actually bring back some goodwill between the family members. Sometimes, again, between the parents. Also, choosing battles. I would often have to lay out for the parents, like, if you if you go to war over every single th- expectation you have, you'll always be at war, and your child will give up. Because if you fight about cleaning their room and getting good grades at school, and... Making sure that they play a sport or that they, that they get a job that they don't wear what you call slutty clothing that they don't smoke pot occasionally that they are not sneaking onto their phone at night or you know if you fight about every little thing, then there won't have there won't be any room for any kind of positivity between the two of you and when there's no positivity, your kid will give up because in order for your kid to be motivated and inspired to follow your rules, they have to love you. They have to like you. And if they don't like you for this kid, they will, they'll really go off the edge. So uh, let's try to prioritize here. And, and a lot of that for, for me was essentially as an expert telling these parents that they had permission to let go of certain things. Uh, There were two types of parents. I found Uh, one one set of parents would be like thankful that I was saying you don't have to force your kid to clean their room. It's nice if their room is clean, of course, but let's be realistic here. Your kid is uh, smoking pot every day and drinking on the weekends and stealing cars and isn't going to school. Uh, the fact that their room isn't clean is let's just say that's further down the list of priorities, and so, Half the parents would be like, "Thank you Kirk for telling me that that was okay because I felt like I had to toe the line there because I felt like I was a bad parent if I didn't." The other 50% of parents would look at me like that I was essentially just saying that I should I should I was telling them that they should let their kids do anything. That I was saying that they shouldn't have any rules for the kid. And that was not what I was saying, and so I usually had to really prove to them that I absolutely supported their value of rest- of um, limitations to the child's behavior and to you know encouraging responsibility for the child and all that kind of thing. But for some kids, they were for some parents, they were just so rigid about these kinds of things, and it was it took a long time. And like I said, I couldn't just sit. Back in the chair and just try to convince them. I had to get, I had to get into the thick of it with some of these parents. I'll I'll never forget this one guy, very macho guy, and he was he was totally rigid about his kid and and uh, you know picking on every little thing. And I was like, you know, saying, look, let's pick the top five things and let's really stick to that. But you know, six and beyond, let's let those things go for now. Let's revisit those, but. Let's let those go for now. Let's pick our five most important things. You know, curfew, going to school, getting good grades, drug-free, this kind of thing. And, you know, the fact that he has a mild attitude with you after school, Let's maybe let's put that lower on the list. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me your top five priorities. This guy was just determined and so stubborn, and I – I lost it. <laughs> I'll never forget. This is again in-home therapy, and I was actually at his place of work. This is a long time ago, but he was a construction worker, and I believe I was like in, he was like a foreman or a you know a contractor or some kind of boss man. And so I was in his in his sort of boss office, and I remember he was sitting behind his desk. I could have some of these details wrong, but I do remember this part of it is that. I just started yelling at him. And I remember thinking, you know what? I'm done with this guy. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to, th- this is useless as I was thinking in my head. And I was like, I'm just going to tell it as it is. And then he'll hate me and he'll fire me as a therapist and I'll never talk to him again. But at least I got my recommendations off my chest. I'm, I'm done tiptoeing around this guy, which is what I was doing. I was trying to, I was trying to be very diplomatic and I, I just was like, screw this. And so I just said, hey, da da you know, I really laid into him. And then we started yelling at each other. And I think we might have even stood up and started, you know, really yelling. <laughs> I don't know. was probably exaggerating in my mind. But, but we talked for a long time. And in, in my head, it was hours because it just kept going on and on. And I started noticing that, wait, he hasn't kicked me out yet. <laughs> we're, we're still talking. And then at the end of the session, I I said, I I just wrapped it up and I thought, well, you know, I let him have it and I'm sure I'm never going to talk to him again. And we were close enough to each other. And then we just hugged. And I remember thinking, why are we hugging right now? (laughs) This, This is weird. And then he hired me as a therapist ongoing. And I worked with him for years after that. And at In every single session, we would touch on his relationship with his own father and he would cry uncontrollably. And as he was crying, sometimes in front of his son, by the way, he would look at me and he says, he says, Kirk, every time you do this to me, you know, and I'm getting a little teary just thinking about, you know, you just every time Kirk, you, you get to that soft spot and, you know, you, you bring this out in me and. It was one of the most beautiful relationships I've ever had with a client. And the point is, is that I couldn't just lean back. You know, that's why I said it takes a very special kind of therapist, family therapist. Now, I'm not saying I'm special. I'm saying that there's a class of family therapists, uh, maybe most family therapists, that can do this kind of work where you have a good approach. You can remain differentiated. You can remain professional but you're very much leaning in and you're not just always asking people how they feel about things. Um, Other things is to, as a family therapist, is to help everyone recover from their trauma, whether that's in family therapy or individual therapy. Other things are, is having family sessions where the parents express their vulnerability. Like I was saying with that one guy, he, he would cry in front of his son. And this was a huge deal to the family as a whole. The son, you know, his acting out decreased significantly as he saw his father crying in front of me. Now, that's not the only thing that needs to happen, but it it definitely can, depending on what the problem is in the family, it can definitely help. I mean, at the very least, it helps the kid go, oh, I guess my parent's, are suffering. I thought they were just out to get me, but I guess they're suffering a lot and it, you know, it helps and then you can bond and heal and you know. So being having parents be vulnerable and getting to their vulnerabilities is is, a, is an important part of it, you know, and often that has to do with trauma recovery as well. Helping the child feel heard. A lot of these kids are walking around without anyone ever really listening to them. And when no one listens to you, you'll act out. Also, helping the child with decision-making. I did this a lot with with teenagers. I'd be like, okay, so let's review your decision last weekend to run away from home for two days. And the kid would say, I didn't run away from home. And I'd be like, well, what do you call not coming home for 72 hours? (laughs) You know, it's like... That's called running away, or at least, you know, I don't know what you're going to call it. You didn't come home for 72 hours. And I said, Let, let's talk about the decision-making there. What, what, what was going on in your mind leading up to that? And we'd break it down. And they'd be like, well, um, I was getting sick and tired of my parents telling me what to do, and I just wanted freedom. And I was like, okay, what what'd you do with your freedom? Well, I don't know, just played video games with my friends. I'm mean, like, okay, so you got to play video games with your friends. And – that's great, and that's 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 on the plus side of, of the column. It's in the pros co- column. Now let's look at the cons of what you did. Now your parents are going to the police. They're going to the courts, and there's a chance that you could end up in detention from, from an at-risk youth petition because your parents are moving ahead with that now because they feel it's their responsibility to take action because – you ran away from home. And if they don't do something about that, then they're being irresponsible, unloving parents to just let kids, you know, 13 year olds just disappear from the face of the planet, like, not very many parents are going to say that they should just sit idly by with that. So, so is, is there a different way that you could have got what you wanted? And be like, well, I was grounded. I was like, okay, well, could you have withstood the grounding for a week? And then and then hung out with your friends during the day and then got home between, but you know, before curfew could, could that have worked differently because you're shooting yourself in the foot. Now for some kids, this was not really the issue, but for some kids it was literally this, you know, some kids just have no mentoring essentially. They just have no one there to be like, Hey, let's walk ourselves through this. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, I I had a, you know, I had a rebellious sort of side to me. And I won't, I won't go into the stories, but (laughs) let's say police were involved at times. And I had people there that actually helped me to problem solve. I had my parents, I had coaches, you know, I was I played sports, my football coaches were very dear to me. Uh, I had other people, and I would listen to them. I don't know if I thought I was listening to them at the time, but, but they were there to kind of just give me some advice and take, you know, interest in me. And that's a big function of being a teenager is, is having that kind of relationship with someone that's not an authority over you, you know, someone that you you don't mind hanging out with, who isn't technically in control of your life, who can sort of objectively comment on what you're doing with yourself, because, this notion that like 14 year olds have good decision making is just absurd right you know they have a lot of needs and a lot of things pulling at them in various different directions and it's not surprising that 14 year olds sometimes make mistakes and so just punishing the kids doesn't help the kid understand how to make decisions you know one of the things i would talk with a lot of teenagers about was that i i would say I would tell them this This is the story I'd tell them in general. I'd be like, okay, kid, when when I was your age, I didn't like rules either. And when I I bumped up against rules, I I would try to figure out a way to get around them. But I I don't know what happened, but at some point in in my teenage life, I figured out that if I just told my parents what they needed to hear – and and being honest to them i thought maybe that would work and so i sat my parents down one night and i actually did do this and i told them that they didn't have to worry about me because i i i had a good value system you know i told them like if i'm out past curfew you don't have to worry about me because i'm not going to do a i'm not going to do b i might be i might do a little of c but understand that you know in moderation and I just kind of laid it all out and I said you're just going to have to trust me on this um, and I hope that you do and my parents believed me because I I was believable and I was telling them the truth and so as a result my parents uh, let go of the reins and I had a great high school life because of that (laughs) and I didn't do terrible things because I didn't need to in order to have fun And so uh, that was me. It's not everyone. But I would tell that to kids. And I'd say, like, if you just gave your parents the benefit of the doubt and actually told them uh, how you make decisions, then it might help. You know, I might ask the kid, I would be like, so if, you know, if if someone buys a keg of beer is it your mission to like get as drunk as you can and vomit? And the kid would be like, no, I don't, you know, a lot of kids would be like, I, you know, I don't even like drinking that much. You know, I just like to get a little high and, you know, I don't, I don't like drinking a lot. I don't, I don't like that, that feeling. I'd be like, okay, what if you told your parents what you just told me? Because if you told your parents what you just told me, your parents aren't going to be excited about the fact that you're getting high and that you're just having a couple beers. But – In the absence of any information, they think you're smoking pot and drinking all the time and that you have no ability to make a decision. So inspire your parents by telling them uh, your decision-making process because you're a smart kid and you know how to protect yourself. Now, of course, not every kid was like that, but most of them were, honestly. Most of them – Once they got out away from their parents' authority, they actually could decipher a good decision from a bad one. It didn't protect them from all bad decisions, but but it certainly was a guide that the parents were not really aware of. Anyway, um, now, some of the kids were completely out of control for sure. So, you know, I'm talking about a wide range of kids here. Other things are we would talk about natural consequences Instead of creating conflict between parents. And so, and this was this was a tough one, you know, for a lot of parents, you know, that when your kids don't do their homework, for example, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, hey, how come you do not your, your homework? Your teacher called and said that you didn't even turn in your assignment today. So that's, So that's the first line of defense, right? And for a lot of kids, that's all you need to do. You just need to be like, hey, your teacher called me and you're in trouble. You didn't do your homework. And the kid's like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. And then they get their behavior in line. Now, there's a whole other group of kids where that doesn't work. Okay, so the second time it happens, you you escalate your tone of voice. You're like, hey, we talked about this last week. Your your teacher called again and said you didn't turn in your homework. What's the deal? You know, what's going on here? And, you know, some kids that'll work, but there's a percentage that even that second thing is not going to work. For whatever reason. And, and so eventually this escalates into a constant level of monitoring and conflict between parents and kids. And then I would arrive and I'd be like, okay, let's evaluate this. Um, What are you concerned about when it comes to homework? You know, what are you really worried about when it comes to homework? And the parents would be like, well, they're just supposed to do their homework. And I'd be like, okay, tell me more. they'd be like, well, Homework teaches responsibility, and homework means that you're learning things. You've got to learn things. you got to graduate from school. Be like, okay, why do you want your kid to be responsible and graduate from school? And they'd be like, huh. You know, a lot of parents, they just never even thought this much through. They just sort of did what they think they're supposed to do without really thinking about why they're doing it. It's sort of like when you come to a stop sign in the middle of a desert and there isn't a car in sight, why do you stop? <laughs> Right? I mean, people would just be like, "Well, because you're just supposed to." And I'd be like, "No, why do you stop at any stop sign?" Be, you know, the, the real answer is because of safety. That should be the answer. I stop at stop signs because the stop sign is there to promote safety. If you just blow through if everyone just blew through an intersection, there'd be accidents. So if you see a stop sign in the middle of a desert and there isn't a single car in sight for miles, you don't need to stop. Now, it's against the law, and you could get ticketed, but we have to understand the reasons why. We we shouldn't just follow rules and guidelines because of the rules and guidelines. The rules and guidelines are there for a reason, so we need to know the reason. And the reason why we are concerned about kids going to school and getting good grades and being responsible is because we want kids to be happy when they're older, and and we don't want them to hurt other people. We don't want them to hurt others because that's not cool. And we want the kids to be happy. And when I got parents to sort of really sit with that, okay, so when you're yelling at your kid and you're grounding them for three months because they are refusing to do their homework, you're trying to make them happy. (laughs) You're, you know, it's sort of like you're, your husband gets bit by a rattlesnake and in the middle of the desert and you pile into the car and you're speeding to the hospital and you see a stop light ahead and you see no cars at, you know, within miles of that intersection and you stop at the stoplight. That's stupid blow through the stoplight. Doesn't the stoplight is there for safety because and and this, the safety issue is you need to get your husband to the hospital, run the red light. Think before you do shit like that. Okay. So when you're, you're destroying your relationship with your child, and you're driving your child's happiness, you know, into the ground, because they're not doing their homework, you lost sight of the reason why you wanted your kid to do homework in the first place. And so People listening right now, you hear the intensity of my voice, and this is the intensity I would talk to the parents, because if I just sort of laid this out in a calm manner, they it wouldn't be compelling. I'd have to, because it's a total paradigm shift. Now, the parents would inevitably say, oh, so I'm just supposed to give up? And I'd be like, okay, good. I'm glad you said that. All parents say that, because they all did. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, I'm not saying give up. I'm saying... Let's have a holistic viewpoint when it comes to the child. You love your child. You want your child to be happy. And you are doing many things to help your child be happy. But some of the things you're doing are, have you've lost sight of why you're doing it? And research shows many children do not graduate from high school and are still happy. (laughs) Many kids. Do not have high-paying careers and don't go to college and are still happy. And many, and this is what I'd always say to parents as well. I would say, and this is part of the paradigm shift, and I've said this before in the podcast, I'd say, would you rather have a, a successful surgeon who's an asshole and who's unhappy or would you rather have a, your kid not graduate from high school and become a janitor and be happy? Which one would you rather have? And the parents would get tripped up on that. A lot of parents, they'd be like, um, well, yeah, you know, the answer is obvious, right? But because culture and pressure on parents is so pervasive, parents don't know how to sift through their own love for their child and what society is telling them what they're supposed to do as parents. Sometimes those things coincide. Sometimes they don't. Society tells parents you're supposed to, especially middle class and upper class parents, you're supposed to raise kids who are rich and successful and dynamic and they're beautiful and thin and have beautiful kids and, you know, that have, that take pictures awesome on Facebook. Like there's a whole lifestyle involved in this and it's implicit and no parent explicitly states this, but I would find it to be quite pervasive. And so- when kids would not go to school, it it would just create this vicious cycle where the parents would just lay into the kids. The kids would feel alienated and would passive-aggressively not do their homework as a way of getting back at their parents. The parents would get more upset, and the thing would just go on and on and on. And then I'd step in. I'd say, like, why are you doing this? The parents, well, because it, it, we have to teach our kid to be responsible. I'd be like, why do you want your kid to be responsible? And eventually we get to – well, cause I want my kid to be happy. I don't, if, you know, if, if my kid is irresponsible, a lot of bad things are going to happen to them and they're not going to be happy. And I'd say your kid is going to be a hundred times uh, more unhappy if they don't feel love from you. If they don't feel that you accept them than if they don't do their homework. <laughs> Take it from me. There are plenty of adults who did all their homework as kids and had no connection with their parents and grew up very unhappy people. And there are plenty of adults that I talked to who did terrible in school as a teenager, but felt that foundation of love and attachment with their parents. And now as adults, they're happy, even though their careers aren't going fantastically. And so that took a long time. And with some parents, I literally would work on that paradigm shift for years. Um, among other things. And so it's not easy. And it doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Um, the last thing here is, oh, and getting back so to natural consequences, it's the whole point of what I'm saying here is that we would try to get to a place where uh, not all situations were like this, by the way, uh, I would never just use what I'm saying, all the things I'm saying, as sort of a panacea for all families. Um I definitely would have to adjust all this stuff depending on what the family was like and what was going on. Because some of the some of the families, particularly the Asian families, not to be sort of stereotypical um, with my own Asian people, but a lot of the Asian kids who were acting out and doing a lot of concerning behaviors, their grades were still pretty good <laughs> because of just the identity or something. I don't know. It's kind of a weird phenomenon. But – I mean certainly not all Asian Americans were doing awesome in school. But anyway, Um, the point is is that I adjusted all this. I never just went into a family and just sort of bulldozed what I'm saying here without adjusting everything to the situation at hand. The last thing I'll say is parenting support. You know, parenting uh, at at a good day is stressful and in these situations is like eternally stressful. And so – uh, one, as a therapist, I would provide therapy healing support for them and I would also encourage them to talk to other parents. There were – you know, there's a lot of parenting support groups around – free that you can join. So there's that sort of thing. So I could go on and on for probably hours and hours and hours about what I did as a family therapist and it wasn't just me that was involved. There were often probation officers, teachers, coaches, aunts and uncles, siblings, grandparents – Um, You know, teachers, police officers, other people, other therapists, you know, sometimes there were multiple family therapists involved, uh, wraparound services, these kinds of things. And I was a part of that team. And I would say that about a third of the time, we succeeded by bringing the family closer together, healing the traumas for everybody to some extent. And reducing the problematic behavior in the child. Another third of the time, we got some headway with things, but the kid was still defying a lot of the rules. Uh, But the parents were less freaked out. They felt more supported. They felt like they had a good game plan. There was less conflict about the problematic behavior in the teenagers. The teenagers toned down their behavior a little bit, but it wasn't entirely gone. You know, they still would, you know, maybe disappear for 24 hours, maybe some minor crimes, maybe ongoing pot use, this kind of thing. And then another third of the time, nothing good happened from my intervention. <laughs> like it, everything stayed the same. It was nothing I did worked, um, either because of my fault or the situation was just too off the rails or no one really wanted me to help them because a big part of this was I had to, because when, and it's a very stressful situation and you family therapists out there know this. uh, When these families arrive in my office, they would arrive in my office or I would be called to go to the home. No one wanted me there. So the teenager definitely didn't want to talk to me and the parents didn't want to talk to me. The parents wanted me to talk to the teenager The parents wanted me to therapize the teenager. The teenager didn't want to talk to me. The parents didn't want to talk about their problems. No one wanted to talk to me. (laughs) So uh, step one was convincing everyone that they did want to talk to me. (laughs) And for a lot of people, this was their first time in therapy, right? And uh, that's a tough sell. None of them want to talk. None of them want to ask me for help. You know, everyone wants to blame everyone else. And job priority number one is getting everyone to admit that they have that they're contributing to the problem, which obviously is not easy. So for some of those families, I couldn't convince them that they should ask me for help, you know, and they just stayed in that space. And I just sat by and watched the train wreck and you know, tried to get people to see how I might be able to help them with their part in it. You know, they would be complaining about the other person. I'd be like, well, that other person isn't here right now, but you're here. So maybe there's something you can do to change your, you know, from your side. And they'd be like, no, it's not my fault, you know, that kind of thing. So, So there was a wide variety of what I saw. And like I said, only about a third of the time, would things actually get better? So I am not claiming that there was some kind of uh, high success rate. And any therapist who claims that when it comes to these kinds of kids is either delusional, lying, or extremely lucky with the five clients they've worked with so far or something. You know, it's a tough situation. The The kid isn't mature enough to – know what to do. Everyone has been traumatized in all likelihood or has some mental illness. Uh, the parents are doing everything they can and they've got their own problems and their own shame and they've made their own mistakes, parenting and otherwise. And then I come in and I'm like trying to help people face themselves. It was a tough job <laughs> to get people to be... to. And and the other thing, the other problem with this sort of therapy is like you got to be quick because this isn't long term therapy. You know, when adults come to me now in my you know my practice over the past fifteen years, typically therapy goes on for years, so I got time to luxuriate. (laughs) We there is no rush. We can say, well, let's work on that over the next five years. What do you say? Okay. With these families, it was an emergency. Something's got to be done now. Uh, you know, this kid is uh, presenting behaviors that need to be addressed now, and the family is falling apart now, and the kid could die now. And, you know, sometimes that was actually a very huge concern. I had kids in gangs that were getting shot. Uh, there was a – well, I won't tell you the specifics because it might break confidentiality, but there was, you know, a, no, a newsworthy shooting in Seattle and that one of my clients was involved in. And, and he almost died. And I in the hospital, it's like, he's like, I, you know, Kirk. I now realize that being in a gang was wrong. You were, you were right. Uh, you know, it wasn't the right thing for me. Um, you know, because I would, I would tell gang members, look, I get it. You, you, you have a group. You have a, you have friends. You have a family. You, you feel like you can't really depend on your biological family, and so you've, you've found a family. You have found people that are loyal people that you can depend on, people that will notice you and hear you and be with you and, and have your back and really show that they won't abandon you. But at what cost, my friend, (laughs) like they are asking you to throw your life away, maybe even die for this uh, bond that you have. And, is it worth it? You know, there are other ways of finding a family outside of your abusive situation that don't involve violence and death and, you know, 15 year prison sentences. And, um, you know, we would talk about that and, you know, it didn't usually work. I mean, once a kid got into a gang, it's really hard to get him out because of that, that bond that they would uh, build and also the terror of retribution if they leave for some of them but anyway this kid is you know he almost died and he is recovering and he's telling me kirk you were right and i'm and he was a real smart kid and he was like i'm not going back to those gangs and there's you know i'm just not going to do it and we had some great sessions for a number of months and then uh one day boom back in the gang and I don't I, – from my memory, I don't think I ever talked to him again because I don't think he ever showed up again. And as a therapist, and you, know, you therapists out there, you know this. It's just like so demoralizing <laughs> to to deal with that. You You work so hard and then it's like one step forward, two steps back with some of these people. And the thing I'd always – and this was a thing we would all tell each other as family therapists back in the day is – We'd say we're planting seeds, you know, meaning that we're planting seeds as therapists that will grow later. Once it's watered, maybe at 22 or 32, the therapy we're doing now will grow into something beautiful then, but not now. We're planting seeds because we needed some hope that what all the hard work that we were doing as family therapists would amount to something and it was never known and that's one of the demoralizing things about being a therapist is that it's hard to among some populations it's hard to know anything you're doing is helping because you're you're standing you know in front of a dam as the dam bursts and you're trying to hold back the water and you're you're putting everything that you got into the effort and and it, there's it's just overwhelming there's there's too much trauma there's too much going against you. There's too much going against the kid and the family, and and the uh, it's just it's heartbreaking. And so you just have to say, "I'm planting seeds." <laughs> I'm I'm planting seeds. So uh, that's a long-winded response to you, Katie. Uh, I'm sure you can relate to it as you worked with a lot of those kinds of people in these um, wilderness camps, and with some of these kids. You know, sort of lesser of two evils, you'd be like, as a parent, you're sitting there going, okay, uh, I don't want to imprison my child. I don't want goons to come and take my child away. That's heartbreaking to me. But if I don't do something, this kid is going to die because they're in a gang. Or this kid is using heroin. That's another thing. Seattle has a heroin problem. And there there are a lot of teenagers using heroin that I would treat. And they would just refuse to stop they would refuse to go to treatment they would refuse sobriety and what do you do as a parent what do you do as a parent when your 16 year old is using heroin and everything that you're doing is not stopping them from using heroin what do you do do you just you just let it happen and cuz heroin kills and one of the clients that i had did die from heroin cuz heroin is very easy to overdose opiates are very people know this but but um yeah, I had a client that died from from that very smart um, you know, and a young woman and I I I had so many sessions with her and and she was tough to work with. She was she was um, you know, hard to talk to. She hated being in therapy with me. <laughs> and, uh, we made it work, but um but she died and it's actually kind of hard for my brain to accept it actually it's it's like i don't you know talking about it right now it's like i don't think i i don't think my brain fully believes that she's gone i mean it was a client from a long time ago but anyway what are you supposed to do as a parent you you've tried all the other things and then someone comes along and says look if we can have goons come and take your kid to a wilderness camp and by definition they won't be using heroin by definition they won't be uh, Uh, going and hanging out with gangs they won't be on the corner selling drugs because they'll be it's sort of a a prison but it's also like a good time we have activities and therapy and what do you do as a parent do you do nothing do you say well I don't want to spend the money or well I, I don't want to I don't want to inconvenience my teenager you know because as a parent you're sitting there going I, I this is if I don't do something my kids going to die and not only is that just going to be terrible but that will be on me I, that will be my fault that my child died I if my child dies and I didn't do everything that I could have done that's on me so I'm, I better do something and that's what a lot of these parents are doing now did Paris Hilton's parents were they really in that kind of scenario from the documentary it didn't seem like it honestly well, I don't know. Um, was was Paris' behavior severe? It sounds like maybe. You know, she was a teenager going out at all nights to these clubs and with older people. You know, imagine your 16-year-old daughter is going to nightclubs in New York City every night and drinking, potentially using drugs, meeting older men, blah, blah, blah. Like, you better do something about that, Right. Um, so it's it's just a very difficult situation, and the the solution is not in uh, breaking laws by imprisoning children. The solution is holistic care that is available to families with compelling, experienced, well paid professionals. Because part of the problem is that this sort of work is so stressful. And you don't get paid that much. This sort of, you know, there's a reason why I only did this in the beginning of my career is because I couldn't pay off my loans if that's all I did. It, it's, it's, you know, almost minimum wage the kind of pay that therapists will get when they do that kind of work. Unless you, you know, you're a family therapist for the stars and rich and famous, <laughs> you know, like because insurance companies sometimes don't pay, doesn't pay for it. Um, a lot of these families can't afford the kinds of services that are needed. Anyway, the point is, is that we need tax dollars that are allocated by state and federal government that pays for, you know, a whole slew of clinicians to come in and potentially go into the home and help the family. Now, sometimes it's not going to work. But even if a third of the time it does, that's going to save a lot of lives and save a lot of pain and save a lot of trauma from a variety of sources. Um, We also need to train better. We also need to focus on the things that I'm talking about and beyond rather than falling into the – because some family therapists will fall into this trap of, of well i've just got to increase the discipline and the consistency around rules for this child a lot of parents will f- a lot of therapists will fall into this trap and i've trained a lot of therapists who fall into this trap and then i got to get them out and it's very tempting as a family therapist particularly if you have your own kids and you understand, and you sort of relate to the parents to just fall into this trap of like well these kids need structure you know there needs to be like discipline for this child because this this child uh, needs to know but the difference between right and wrong, that kind of thinking. Now, it's complicated. There's nothing wrong with discipline. There's nothing wrong with structure. And there's nothing wrong with helping a kid understand the difference between right and wrong. Sometimes that is part of the equation for sure. But if that's all you do, it usually just perpetuates the problem, in my experience. And There's so much more that family therapy can offer, you know, the kinds of things I was talking about. Helping people to bond, helping people to build those attachments back, helping people to know their emotions, helping people to communicate their emotions, helping people recover from the resentments of the past between themselves and and their families of origin for the parents. You know, there's so many things that therapists are very uniquely uh trained to give to people and to just focus on rules and structure is really limiting your um offerings to your clients. you know it'd be like going to a hair cutter and all you do is like trim their nose hair or something. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, that's good, but you know there's a lot of other hair in the person's head that you could help them out with. <laughs> Well, you know, when I'm using an analogy like that, uh, I should probably end the episode, and that's what I will do. And let me know what you think. Go to psychologyseattle.com, click on the contact page. Let me know what you think. Also, participate in the hashtag breaking code silence movement. If you haven't watched the Paris Hilton documentary on YouTube, uh, that's instructional. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. <music>